This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a look at Prince's triumphant Purple Rain. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say it's time to 80s roll. That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, welcoming back Ed Legg, the Freebird Yeller, to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. This time, we're at Band's Chinese Theater, Hollywood, California, July 26, 1984, and it's finally time for Prince and Purple Rain. Ed, did you think we'd ever make it? You know, it's like we're moving into finally into hyperspace. It, it really is. Warp drives engaged. I mean... <laughs> Michael carried us for the first part of the year pretty excitedly. And, and you know, there was the British Invasion and Cindy Lauper and lots of fun. But then that victory tour was a massive bummer in the last chapter. And I was True. ready. I was ready for some prints. This, and, and for one thing, the listening last week was a painful chore, which is the first time it's happened. Um, and this week, I mean, it was a delight. It was a delight. The purple one, all hail. All hail Prince Rogers Nelson. That's that's all I got to say. Amen, brother. But, but let's let's dive into this. He starts up actually with um, he wraps it up kind of the last chapter. He talks about Ladonna Jones. Ladonna Jones is the eleven year old girl who was saving her newspaper money to buy tickets to see the Jacksons when she found out it was going to be $28 a ticket and you had to buy four of them that priced it out of her range. So she wrote a letter to the Dallas morning news that got picked up. And so she gets to go. Um, it ended up that, that the Jackson sent a limo to pick her up. They took her backstage. She got to meet Michael and the other brothers. So happy ending there. Then they segue into 
<clears throat> one of the most horrific events of 1984, the James Huberty I'm Hunting Humans mass shooting at the McDonald's in San Diego. And this is back when mass shootings didn't happen every week. <laughs> and, right. And were really traumatic for the whole country. I mean, not that they're not traumatic now, but it's just we're kind of numbed to them. But at that point, I mean, there was a, as I always bring up Time Magazine, but there was a multi-page spread in Time Magazine about this. And it really added to a level of paranoia around the Jackson's camp. And then they um, also talk about Eddie Van Halen showing up to play Beat It live there at Texas Stadium with Dallas. But then, as always with Montos, he makes a smooth transition because somebody else is backstage, and that's Prince. And, you know, beautiful connection, beautiful segue. And from that point, it's the purple one all the way through um, for the rest of the chapter. And, And he mentions that Prince showed up backstage at Texas Stadium to see the Jacksons with Alan Leeds. And Alan Leeds is like a let it roll legend because he was the road manager for James Brown um, and uh, somebody else in the 70s. I can't remember who. But anyway, major dude, major, major music business dude. And he was Prince's road manager too. lighting director, Roy Bennett, his security team, his massive security team, big chick leading the way uh, and percussionist Jerome Benton. Um, from the time. And so I thought that was an interesting crew. I mean, who do you bring to see the biggest concert? You bring your road manager, your lighting director, your security team, and somebody from your opening act. It seems pretty clear like this was a business trip for Prince. I think everything was with him. He was he was very business-minded, and he even acts that way in, in the movie. It's true. It's true. He basically... <laughs> From what you can tell, he played himself in the movie. Yeah. Did you go back and watch it again good. for this? No, I did not. Oh. I I confess. I've and I have seen it since I have seen I have seen it since 1984, but it's been a while. When I moved to Minnesota, I watched it. I was, you know, what I was thinking about it a lot, which I know counts for nothing. How did you probably did go back and look, <laughs> didn't you? I did, um, but I did it when we started the book, and then I went back and watched some favorite scenes uh, for this one. Um, It's not – I mean, I think Michael Gilmore called it the Citizen Kane of rock movies, and I think that's a bit much, but it's a pretty good movie. And and the the performance stuff is just priceless, and and it's such a big part of the legend of Prince that um, I think it holds up quite well. Um, it kicks the crap out of Footloose and Flashdance, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> not even close, not even close. But um, go ahead. Were you old enough to see it in the theater when it came out? Oh, yeah, I was 15. I, I, oh, okay, I took a okay. date. I took a date. There you go. Yeah, I yeah. did too. I did I mean, too. her dad drove us. Well, <laughs> way to go, man. Way to go. Well, I mean, to, to me, the, and I don't want to get ahead of things, but. That's not the way that movie, the way that movie showed up at that point. And it, you know, after, I mean, the, the, the victory tour had been going on a little while, but when I, when I remember just seeing the first ad for, for the trailer for Purple Rain on a Saturday night, and it just had so much excitement in it. And I didn't see it coming. Now, maybe other people did and knew what was coming and, you know, it's it's reflected in the book. He doesn't, he you know, he doesn't foreshadow it very much, and 
there was so much going on. There was so much density in that year already. And then all of a sudden, August, and here comes Purple Rain. Yeah. And I mean, and, and, it, and it very much um, is like a torch passing. I mean, it's, it, it was very yeah, much like, it like, is. like Michael had been so hot. And and the accomplishment of Thriller was so overwhelming, but that was 1983, and it had already run its course. And Michael was planning to take 84 off and gets dragged into this, you know, ill-thought-out victory tour with his brothers, and clearly stumbled. And Prince yes. just takes over. I mean, takes over. <clears throat> and the Purple Rain album essentially took over from Thriller at the top of the charts for the next six months. I mean, this, um, you know, just a monumental accomplishment, monumental accomplishment. And and really, the opening was created. Well, the opening was going to be there one way or the other. Either Michael was going to take the year off, in which case Prince would have had the whole lane to himself, or Michael was going to do the victory tour, in which case Prince essentially still had the lane to himself. <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, and then with the tragedy of the, you know, the explosion on the set of the Pepsi commercial and his hair catching on fire and everything, you know, like we talked about, Michael hit that point where he hit turbulence. And, and these career arcs, you very rarely see somebody hit, you know, once they're going up, 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 up. And once they start going down, they, they you know, you don't regain your upward altitude. Not not very often anyway. And, and you know, Michael... Certainly, I mean, it was an impossible task to match Thriller, but he certainly never came True. close. And Prince more than matched Thriller. Uh, well, I mean, he didn't obviously quite match the commercial success of Thriller, but and maybe it's because I'm a rockist and not a dance fan. I was I thought that word about myself today, thinking about this this phenomenon, because I was I was totally into that movie. And people who I know, like I went and saw it, I think the opening weekend and then ran into some people who were my age or older, which is, you know, mid twenties. And they were asking me about it. People were talking about it and nobody ever asked me if I was going to see the victory tour. Um, it, it, he just, there was something exciting and new about it. Yeah. About, uh, Purple rain. It, it absolutely was, and it just it just took over. But let's go ahead and hear some Prince. This is from 1979 right. from the Prince album, Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad. And that was why you want to treat me so bad from Prince's second album, the self-titled titled Prince album. And yeah, and then and then from there, um, I do want to get one Quincy uh, Quincy Jones quote though. He he um, compared Prince to Stevie Wonder. So he said about Prince, "That cat is really talented." I met Stevie at age fifteen, and there was never any doubt what he was going to be. I think Prince has it too. I mean, that is heady praise because. Stevie Wonder is essentially a musical god. You know, one of the greatest stars yeah. of 
70s and one yeah. of the great Motown stars of the 60s and also a musical prodigy, like a literally a Beethoven level musical prodigy. And Prince had that same, you know, brought that same level of firepower to the table. And, and you know, somebody like Quincy Jones can recognize and, and he did, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I also... I also liked this quote from Albert Magnoli, who, who directed Purple Rain, and he said, there was always artistic competitiveness between Michael Jackson and Prince, but they never had a harsh word to say about each other, ever. Prince honored Michael Jackson. And, and I think that's important that, you know, to know, and that the two of them, but I mean, for one thing, they were at a distance. They were never on the same record label they didn't come out of Motown together or anything like that. They, they were never competing, uh, you know, in the same stall. It's not like they were, you know, kittens with the same mother or whatever. They were never fighting over the same tit. They, they, they both had their own space. Uh, Prince, you know, obviously ruled Minneapolis and Michael was a citizen of the world. So, you know, I, I, they had some distance so they could, they could respect each other from a distance and admire each other from a distance. But, but I think I think it is uh, touching is probably a bit much. But I like knowing that they respected each other and didn't and didn't trash each other. And then and then um, Matos tells the story from the August 1983 show. Uh, James Brown was playing in Hollywood, I think, and he knew Michael Jackson was in the in the crowd, and he invited him up on stage. And Michael does a star turn on there, but just goes along with the band. He basically dances with James Brown, but then he tells James that Prince is in the crowd and James Brown invites Prince up. And it, I, you know, when I watched that video, have you watched that video of James Brown? No, there? I haven't. No, but I mean, I was thinking about that in regard to Prince and how, um, and it's a, a easy word to say is imperious. I mean, he's kind of <laughs> like a king. Yeah. Know? And for, go ahead. Yeah, And it makes sense based on all the, third-hand stuff I heard when I lived in Minnesota about the, uh, you know, his, uh, the potentate, the whole thing that he did, but go ahead and tell the story. Well, so Prince gets on and like tries to take over and it just didn't work. <laughs> and, and he, he, right. he, 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 you know, tried to do some guitar stuff and, and basically, you know, was kind of stripping his clothes off and just, <laughs> just overreached and, and, and it, it didn't work. And it, it, it um, I think, and I might be imagining this, but I think Mato said something, you know, that Prince needed to be be an unchallenged star. Like he really didn't he didn't work in a group environment, and I think that that's a classic case. But how do you really plug in with James Brown and Michael Jackson anyway? For James and Michael, it's pretty easy since they're both such epic dancers. I mean, Prince could move, but he wasn't a dancer in that yeah. in that sense, and and um, you know, it just it just kind of didn't fit, but. But then Matos gets into the whole Prince story, and sure enough, he was a prodigy. He had taught himself over two dozen instruments before he finished high school. He's also taken music biz classes uh, in high school, and and I thought it was interesting that he, from a very young age, conceptualized his strategy, and and essentially he said that since Minneapolis was three months late on everything, like every trend, every record, every outfit, he just decided to quote, do my own thing. Otherwise, when we split Minneapolis, we'd be way behind and dated. And, and he, he realized that he 
had to come out of left field, essentially, that he wasn't in New York, he wasn't in L.A., and he didn't want to move. And that he wasn't going to be able to be, like, up to the minute unless he just did his own thing. And then, and we'll talk about this more later, but the the motto seems to zero in on the fact that Minneapolis had a very small black population, like 2.4% 2, 2. of the Twin Cities was black. And that's the Twin Cities. Like, imagine what the rest of Minnesota is like. Or oh, it's not hard. It's, I've been yeah. there. It is, yeah. it is whiter than white. Whiter than white. And not just whiter than white, but Norwegianer than Norwegian. Uh, than Nor yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's, I mean, I'm a white guy and I feel very foreign in many Minneapolis. Um, mm -hmm. And I haven't been there a lot, but it's, <laughs> if you're a Texan or a Southerner or whatever, it's extremely yeah. culturally alien. Um, yes, it is. It's, it's very, very, very different. And um, people are a lot more restrained and more polite. Um, but, you know, it's just it's just a whole different culture, and if you're black, I imagine it's a it's a real uh, challenge. And you know, super small minority in the Twin Cities, and and you know, completely just absent from the rest of the state for the most part. And I thought it was interesting that Terry Lewis um, credited. Uh, he said basically that the R&B stations in the Twin Cities got such poor reception that all they could hear was the beat so that all the black kids ended up listening to the rock stations as much as they listened to R&B. And I think that was kind of ended up being Prince's secret weapon was that he brought this massive infusion of, of rock influence. I mean, and not that there hadn't been plenty of black bands that essentially played rock. I mean, you know, the Isley Brothers, Parliament Funkadelic. I mean, you know, that's quote-unquote funk, but it, it's also heavy rock a lot of the time. I mean, Ernie Isaac was this great guitar player, heavy rock guitar yeah. player, yeah, who literally was a, a student of Jimi Hendrix. And, you know, Prince was paying close attention to those guys and definitely paying close attention to Funkadelic, but he was also paying attention to, to all the white rock that was out there. And, and Santana uh, comes up, you know, as a big factor and, Anyway, it's uh, it's just interesting to me that that was kind of his secret weapon that he he took that cultural isolation of being black in Minneapolis and turned that into a real asset that he was representing this unique scene and and I mean just the fact that a guy out of Minneapolis became one of the most important uh, black musicians in America is really an amazing accomplishment and. And it wasn't just him. There was a whole scene behind him. And Matos talks about the time and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who were originally in the time, until Prince fires him. Um, and and you know the revolution and and all these guys. It, it was all there was a whole scene, a whole lot of talent spinning around around there. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. And this is um, Prince, "When You Are Mine," off the Dirty Mind album.
And that was When You Were Mine, Prince's classic track from the Dirty Mind album. And and he goes into talking about the band. And, uh, um, you know, Matt Fink, a.k.a. Dr. Fink, who frequently dressed up like a surgeon on stage. That was his surgeon costume, who was uh, in the revolution. Uh, I guess um, he joined the touring band after For You, after Prince's uh, first album. And um, brought in, a, he grew up with the Rivkin brothers, which is Bobby Z, the drummer, and then engineer David Z, um, who were part of the Prince team as well. And um, But uh, Matt Fink wrote that keyboard line from When You Are Mine. So um, I, I thought that was interesting that, that you know, you, you tend to think of Prince as this one-man show, but he actually was, he kept his ears open and drew on his, he collaborated with people for a reason. Like he, he had a keen eye for talent. And, and brought people into his world. And what I, what I think he really brought, besides the prodigy level talent, was the vision and the, the concept. I mean, you know, from the beginning, Prince is writing songs that are going to be hits for other people. And he's recognizing that doesn't fit the Prince persona. I can't use that. And to me, I, I'm just kind of in awe of people who have that kind of conceptual ability and can can you know, visualize and conceptualize what they're doing uh, to that degree. And and it's um, interesting to me also, like when they tell the story, Matsu tells the story of how when the band made their debut outside of Minneapolis in, in November of 1979, and he goes up to the band and gives them a big talk beforehand and says, I want every member of their band to have their own persona. And I'm going to personify sex in every possible way, <laughs> <laughs> which he, he went on to do. And, uh, um, you know, but to, I don't know. I, I, that's the kind of thing that when you read about the Beatles that they were thinking about. I'm sure Michael Jackson was thinking in that same way and Madonna or anybody at that level is thinking about a lot more than just chords and notes. They're, they're thinking about the, the persona they're creating and the story they're going to tell. And Prince is obviously obviously one of the best at that were you aware of prince at all in the, in the late 70s when did you first i actually was and 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 i you you mentioned how you felt and um you know being at being from the south and being in minneapolis this is gonna sound probably strange but Athens, georgia felt kind of like that too university of georgia i don't know what the percentage of african-american students is now but it was pretty small when I went there in the late seventies. Um, and I knew, I mean, I knew I, I could count on two hands. I knew a lot of, of black kids, partly because I went to a black high school and at least one came, came after I did. And the first thing he said to me when I bumped into him was where'd all these white people come from? <laughs> and I mean, and it's only, you know, it's only an hour and a half from, from, um, from Atlanta, you know, it's not even yeah. that it's not that far, but it's just harder to get to. And it's, it's a little more agrarian. And there's certainly places like Columbus where I did eventually live in Albany, where when you see the, the, the voting and the, the purpleization of Georgia, you know, and, and you see that blue across kind of the lower center, that's, that is more African-American and it is, it is also rural, but Athens, definitely wasn't and you know it was an it was certainly an adjustment because i'd gone to a majority black high school 
And then all of a sudden, I'm I'm not only it was a majority rural college in a lot of ways. Kids from, you know, all over the state that that weren't just from the medium sized towns, but were from, you know, super white parts of Georgia too. Um, but but you know what you you talking? I was told by somebody who was a musician. He was older. I have no idea if this is true, but he claims that Prince got all of his funk chops from white guys because there's this huge white funk culture, music culture ahead of Prince, like older boomers and in Minneapolis. And, you know, that's where funky, the guys that did Funky Town is a, that's a white guy that did that. I know, I don't think the singer is white, but the guy that put together Lips Incorporated was a white guy and I know the I met the bass player at one point and tons tons of white guys playing funk supposedly well I mean they pulled it off lips yes think no yep. joke I mean you know but yeah I mean you just look at a picture of them and and there are three white guys in a seven person group four yeah. four white guys yes okay one yeah four and and yeah, and it might be five, um, and with three with three black members. So yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there was definitely a scene there that that yes, preceded, it was. Prince, that preceded Prince. And and you know, he Matos talks about how he um, had been cutting demos with a local band called Champagne, and the studio owner named Chris Moon, who was British noticed prince out of the whole group that he was like prince is the guy and 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 cuts his songwriting deal with him and originally they have a 50 50 songwriting deal and they co-wrote soft and wet so moon must have been bringing something to the songwriting table um you know if he if he co-wrote that and then um yeah. when when prince wrote soft and wet or moon and he wrote it together moon goes i think you have your whole marketing strategy worked out and <laughs> so <laughs> and then dude, which he did yeah it was true yeah yeah <laughs> you know and and I, it's also funny that matos points out that he liked uh, moon liked prince for his lack of ego which <laughs> 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 that changed yeah um but uh you know, he, he was only 19 years old when he signed with Warner Brothers and was given a deal that allowed him to self-produce his own records, which clearly people were impressed with this kid. You know, I mean, not every 19-year-old gets a, a Warner Brothers contract, and they certainly don't get permission to self-produce. I mean, you know, you, you don't see that in the glam metal bands, for example. You know, sure. it, took, it took Eddie Van Halen almost a decade before he was able to produce his own records, you know, a decade of selling platinum levels. Yeah. levels of records but one one other thing i want to mention is that that matos um points out that prince recruited a deliberate mix of white and black and male and female players that he modeled that on sly and the family stone and yeah. you know you know very genius and i think i think that in combination with his guitar heroics and the color purple which is associated with jimmy hendrix because of purple haze he kind of my first impression when I didn't hear Prince until um, Little Red Corvette, and when I first saw that video, I literally thought he was a. I had just seen Woodstock, and I was really blown away by Sly and the Family Stone, and obviously everybody's blown away by Jimi Hendrix, you know, version of Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock, and I really just thought, wow, Sly and Jimi had a kid, and here he is, yeah, and and you know, just totally combined. 
of those two guys. And, and um, but it's interesting, those early records, I think I bought either For You or Prince in the discount bin and was really disappointed that it wasn't more like rock that, that it, that, and it wasn't, I liked Funkadelic too. And it wasn't really like heavy funk. It was like smoother than I liked. And, um, but, but it was interesting that Matos talks about in, in concert, Prince was way more guitar oriented. He cranked his guitar loud on every song and not just on the rockers, but on, on, on all, all the tunes. And so let's take a, a sponsor break and we'll talk a little bit more about Prince's, evolution as he moves towards purple rain hey pantheon listeners christian swain here you caught me just finishing up some editing on getting real with john and beth i want to share my first experience with factor meals for you i think you'll find this interesting because i bet the same thing happens to you i had just received my first shipment from factor meals the other day and i was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant quality meals for myself Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell ya, I have small ear canals, Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And one thing that I thought was interesting, Matos points out how quickly Prince learns and adjusts, that he spent six months making his first album for you. And I think you played all the instruments on that, totally one-man show. And then in Prince, he does it in six weeks, just just focuses on busting it out. And and that's where he gets his first uh, major hit, I Want to Be Your Lover, which I thought was a top 10 hit, but Matos says it all made it to number 11. Um, but that got him on American Bandstand. And, you know, I might have seen that, actually. But anyway, it, 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 I did. I did. I did and, it. you know, when, well, yes. And when you asked me, it was the first time I realized that Prince wasn't a, a like a porn. I thought it was a I, I thought it must be a porn album when I saw Dirty Mind. And I know that that that, <laughs> that um, I mean, really, I was just yeah. it was so outre. And um, and and then I saw him perform. I think I saw the video for um, I Want to Be Your Lover. And I was like, oh. You know, when he had a he had his his hair straight and he was wearing jeans and but he looked cool and he sounded you know I was like oh that's Prince you know that's pretty good and you I never answered your question the the way I found out about Prince was a guy a contributor to the student newspaper um, who happened to be African American reviewed Prince's concert in Atlanta for the paper and that's how I found out you know more about him than. Oh, this isn't a porn album. You know, I mean, he just, that cover just really, um, I, you know, it got my attention, I guess. It yeah, did what I mean, it was supposed to do. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's, <laughs> you know, it's like, you're basically, you're, you're sort of, at first glance, it looks like your classic 70s album because he's, he's wearing like a, a heavy jacket and a, and a kerchief, but he's shirtless, yeah. which is like, you know, yeah. everybody's shirtless. Uh, you'd seen a lot of male skin on record covers, but he's also wearing a speedo and yeah, and, <laughs> and no pants. And, you know, yeah. so, so as you you know, you, your eyes follow that line down, you're kind of like, Whoa, <laughs> what is that? You know? And, uh, um, yeah, I can remember they wouldn't, the Hastings in my hometown, that was a local record store. They would not display that record. They, they would turn it. Um, they would only show the back cover of it and in, in the, in the racks, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that might have just been one out of control manager, but um, but yeah, um, it, it's, it's it's one thing I learned that I didn't know. I mean, Prince has so much unreleased stuff, but that he had cut a whole heavy rock album called Rebels that was unreleased. He cut that in 1979 after his first two records, and he kind of stepped back and is just a member of that band. It's his regular band that he had at the time, which was Des Dickerson on guitar, Andre Simone on bass, Matt Fink on keyboard, Gail Chapman, who uh, kind of had the Lisa role where she'd flip back and forth between guitars and keyboards, and Bobby Z on drums. And he basically, um, I don't think Gail Chapman was in Rebels, I could be wrong, but um basically kind of stepped back and let the, the other guys kind of kind of drive and, and did a rock album. And it's pretty good. It kind of reminds me there was a punk band out of Philly, a black punk band out of Philly called Pure Hell that it kind of reminds me of. But it, it's it's way more produced than that. It's it's not really punk, but it's more like 
Rick James influenced or police style where they've got all the synthesizers and all the production stuff that punk bands usually either didn't have access to or didn't want anything to do with. But, but, but and with the soaring and with the soaring guitar, like the Loverboy Lover Boy soaring guitar stuff. Yeah, uh, that was the one I I list, took your recommendation and listened to, and that and that was what it, it. I heard that part of the rock, and he really did. It's it's astounding that. He, and I mean, I, I was talking to a buddy of mine today about a musician friend about Hendrix and he worships Hendrix. And I mean, and it, because Hendrix was such a, a pioneer and such a, you know, a, a freak the way he played. And Prince seems to have been that good. Of, I mean, at least that that kind of talent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the Loverboy reference, I think, is actually right, because I'll have to go back and listen to some more Loverboy because Prince... Prince's guitar style really doesn't have anything to do with Hendrix. And he says himself that he didn't True. listen to Hendrix that much, that by the time he got records and stuff, Hendrix was long dead. Yeah. And he doesn't really sound like Ernie Isley either. I, I, I bet it was AOR rock guys. The dude's <laughs> out of Boston too. I think he sounds like, ah, um, good point. Um, so yeah, that, that is interesting. I, I, you know, yeah, it's 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 definitely that Loverboy guitar. I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, it, it absolutely is. It's amazing. I never noticed that before. But anyway, they also talk about um, uh, how, as part of the stage act, that Gail Chapman and Prince would make out on stage every night on these early tours, and that that was part of a factor of her leaving the band early on, and that is not something you could get away with in the Me Too era. I don't think I don't think that pr what Prince was doing back then would fly, but of course, it was the early 80s, a very different sexual ethos than uh, True. got today, for sure. And, and of course, they talk about the, the tour, the nine-week tour opening for Rick James, which I've covered Rick James twice, and that's a huge part of the Rick James story. That's kind of like the worst thing that ever happened to Rick James. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, Rick James took so long to get to the top, and when he finally does, here comes Prince, just, you know, right on his heels. I mean, I think Rick James has only been a major star for like two years at that point. And, and the thing about Rick James is he was older. So that kind of explains why he didn't, you know, his body of work is kind of less accomplished than somebody like George Clinton or Prince because he basically got a late start. And, and, you know, music is a young person's game a lot of the times. But, you know, they, they talk about the big rivalry. And then they talk about Gail Chapman quitting and being replaced by Lisa Coleman, who, of course, goes on to become a big part of Purple Rain and the revolution. Um, and then, then they talk about how Dirty Mind had freaked out the Warner Brothers uh, executives. And I, I, Matos has a great line. He says that they had been expecting Stevie Wonder and got a cross between Stevie and Johnny Rotten. <laughs> but wearing a but speedo, a more, wearing a speedo, or a thong. Actually, Steph, Steph reminds <laughs> yeah. me it's actually a thong, not a, not a speedo, um, with thigh high uh, heeled boots on. Yeah, with that. So I mean, and and. I think I think that the way I used to always wonder how Prince got away with playing with his sexuality so much and being so androgynous in the black community, which is you know infamously homophobic. But I think his persona that he was personifying sex in every possible way. He just defined himself as such a freak 
that nobody really got into parsing what kind of freaky he was into, you know? Interesting. And, 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 you know, they just, just, you know, he, he just created this way larger than life uh, persona that was so sexual. Um, but Dirty yeah. Mind, um, you know, pushed, Warner Brothers was famous for their tolerance. You know, Mo Austin was all about the artists and everything. And initially the Warner Brothers executives were resisting Dirty Mind, but, but, but I don't know if, if Prince appealed higher up or if Mo Austin just got word of it, but, but Mo Austin, the top executives, backed Prince and backed Dirty Mind. And the album started slow. The tour was rocky. Um, they played the Ritz in New York City, which normally would be a huge gig. Um, you know, for a band, for an act like Prince that had, you know, coming off of uh, a very successful second album and with a really great third album. But they played, uh, I think, on December 10th, 1980, which was one day after John Lennon was murdered. So only ha- the club was half full, you know, so that just, you know, had to be a drag. Although Andy Warhol came. <laughs> but, there you go. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I, I'm sure Prince cared about stuff like that but by the time they get to denver um uh, you know the tour's picking up and, and girls are mobbing him but let's go ahead and hear our next song this is prince let's pretend we're married from the 1999 album And that was Let's Pretend We're Married from the 1999 album. I'm just picking personal favorites. I, 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 uh, I've always loved that song. Although I was always confused because Delirious has a keyboard line that sounds exactly like Let's Pretend We're Married. <laughs> and Let's Pretend We're Married doesn't sound, the melody isn't quite that. But anyway, that's, that's a side point. But then Matos kind of shifts gears and starts talking about First Avenue Club which is, of course, going to be very important in the Purple Rain movie. It was originally the Depot in 1970. Then it closed after a year. Then it was part of a disco chain called Uncle Sam's for most of the 70s. Then it became Sam's, which was a new wave club in 1980 and had a wide booking policy with dance nights with DJs playing, quote, what Matos calls the same kind of mix that Prince was. So I assume there's a nice mix of, of you know black funk and white rock. And then co-founder Alan Fingerhut would let Prince in to see black bands. And it was very unusual for a white rock club to book black bands in this period. And I wonder if because Minneapolis had so few black people, if maybe that didn't contribute to the white people being maybe a little bit less racist than, than we are in most places. Like It, it, it does. It abs- that is absolutely true. I mean, at one time... Um, Minnesota had an African American pro football, the Vikings football coach, the um, athletic, I think the athletic director at the University of Minnesota, but definitely the the basketball coach at the University of Minnesota was African American, um, and it's that's very true. Um, it's and uh, Bobby McFerrin uh, ended up having a residency there for a long time, as did. Um, August Wilson. Hmm. Um, 
had a long term uh, in St. Paul, uh, became like a poet and, you know, residence there. So, yeah. or, you know, or play, playwright and residence, sorry. Um, so it's, it, 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 it has that element and it's not, it doesn't, and I mean, I lived there during that time and it doesn't come off as tokenism. You know, it's, it's, it's legitimate. Um, and it, it, but it's different from say Atlanta, which had a, a black mayor in the 1970s when I lived there, you know, in which, which my middle school, uh, we had a, a black principal and to me was as, as much, he was an authority figure. That was what I saw him as. And then we had actually a African-American policeman uh, on the force of the town I lived in who stopped me uh, for uh, potential uh, drug drug possession <laughs> which he was he was close but no cigar um, but, but, but i saw him as an oppressive cop you know yeah, and no. and that's how it that's how it was in minnesota when i lived there in the you know the the 90s mainly yeah so, well, of course but you're yeah. right that's very astute yeah but george floyd was was murdered by the police in minnesota it's true it's that not, is very yeah yes, stuff the like cops that. are yes you know yeah still racist but maybe just just yep. in this particular aspect of, of being more open and booking black bands in a time when what most white rock clubs were completely apartheid um you know yeah. and there's a little bit more of a mixed scene here and then they talk about prince's march 1981 uh debut at first avenue which I, i'm not sure if it was still sam's or if it had changed i guess it was still sam's at that point but that it was quote the stuff of instant legend you could see him connecting I had a sense that he felt like this is my audience. That was DJ Kevin Cole who worked at the club there. And then it becomes First Avenue in 1982. And then, then he introduces Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis because uh, Jam worked at the same record store as Kevin Cole, who was the DJ at First Avenue. And they were also close by the Fox Trap, which was a more conventional black R&B club. But by 1981, Jam and Lewis had fallen into Prince's orbit. He uh, Prince had Jam and Lewis cut some demos that became the Times debut album. Um, he added his old drummer Morris Day as their vocalist, replaced the vocalist in the time with Morris Day, and then basically took over, wrote all the songs on on the albums, and and uh, you know kind of kind of puppeteered uh, the whole band, but created a real alternative to him to himself and the revolution with the time. And um, it, it was also interesting Matos quotes. I'm not sure if it's Jam or Lewis, but they were watching Prince very closely in the studio and, and noticed that he recorded everything in the red. And when you record, there's a, there's a needle back in the analog days. And when things were too loud, when the mics were being over overworked, the needle would go into the red. And that shows you're getting distorted. And Prince made sure everything was a little bit in the red because his, his theory being that, that when the human ear hears distorted sound, it assumes it's loud. So kind of an early part of the compression wars, I guess. But, um, you know, uh, Jimmy Jam calls it, quotes, Prince is the Minneapolis sound. People like us, Vanity and the Time are sort of like his children. I think that's definitely true. I mean, Prince crystallized the sound. And then, you know, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis obviously took it all over the world, producing so many records for so many people, but mm -hmm. definitely are, are uh, coming from that same school of thought uh, as, as Prince. And then uh, October 1981, the time debuts at Sam's. And and the fact that um, Prince stayed in Minneapolis, you know, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, even after Prince fired them from the time, 
they they kept that thing that same ethos and they said the only thing we do in los angeles is master the product and pick up the check and i i like that attitude i mean that it's just um just total regionalism and, and it really it really worked out for minneapolis and for for all those artists but prince fire jam and lewis for missing some time shows because they uh, we're producing the SOS band in Atlanta and got trapped in a snowstorm, which how often does that happen in Atlanta? But it, it does. <laughs> I've been stuck the year. Yeah, I've been stuck <laughs> in a snowstorm in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, <laughs> which was the longest week of my life. But um, I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're not prepared for it. No, no, they were not. And I was not prepared for Charleston in the snow either. But um, <laughs> But he points out that in 1981, that there was a new dark age of R&B crossover that only eight R&B hits made the year-end top pop 40, and uh, which was only half of the number of R&B hits that made the pop charts in 1980. And and he talks about how you know the AOR um, color line was so strong back then that that you know if you were a, a black rock act. You are really shit out of luck because because they yeah. um you know you couldn't be marketed to R and B radio because you're not R and B but you couldn't be marketed to rock radio because you're not white I mean it's just you know created this this total dilemma and I think Prince really broke down those color barriers in in a, in a massive way I mean after Prince that you didn't really have that. Um, and let's hear our last last song, and then we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the strategy that Prince and his management used to break him with multiple audiences at the same time. But let's hear, uh, this is one of the famous B-sides. Prince is famous for his unreleased tracks and his great B-sides, and this is 17 Days. And that was 17 Days uh, by Prince. Um, I can't remember what that's the B-side to, but it's one of his famous B-sides. Um, and then, yeah, Steph's getting anxious to, to hear about Purple Rain. She's like, is he not going to talk about the movie? Well, we got to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're, we're behind schedule. But, uh, um, but one thing I thought was interesting was that they had this deliberate strategy when he toured that he would frequently play two gigs in the same market and that and their goal would be to open for a major black act like cameo or parliament plus get a gig at a local new wave or dance club and 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 the the manager conceived the strategy was like and you won't have any audience overlap and he was totally right and and that that really helped prince and then, and then he talks about how prince you know built his whole career on tweaking the moral majority despite the fact that he liked reagan um but but 
it, he just existed to to upset people like Jerry Falwell. And, you know, but then he talks about how that he opened for the Rolling Stones in 1981 and was booed and pelted with garbage. And that was the last time he opened for anybody. And, you know, he's in good company there because Stevie Wonder had also been booed and pelted with garbage when he opened up for the Stones, I think, in 73. And it's just a classic testimony to the racism of the rock audience uh, in this period. Well, of time. Go ahead. I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, 75, the meters were the Stones opening act and uh, in atlanta and um that was probably the i mean that was El, i saw elton john a year before and that was the most diverse audience i was ever at a rock concert with because he had by then um crossed over into black you know black stations with benny and the jets and everything but by the stones i mean the meters were super funky heavy duty funk and um they did not get booed and I, I never felt I had no bad, bad vibe or anything. Um, the Who comes in November that year. This was in July. The Stones were. And then the Who comes in November. Um, Toots and the Maytals, the reggae band, were, were the opening act. They, they, there was no vibe, bad vibe there it, it, until they played country, uh, the reggae version of Country Roads by John Denver. And they were booed. But I, I think I'm glad you're laughing. I think it's because of the song yeah nobody was booing them until that song and it was and it just you know it just wasn't a big favorite at that point yeah yeah i can see it, that. that that was yeah, they, they were not winning converts by playing you know this john denver song and yeah. and i wonder i wonder if it had, if how prince would have been i mean i i want to think that that prince wouldn't have gotten that treatment in atlanta i don't know um i mean it makes me sick to read that about him and there was a a, a a a part white part black band called mother's finest have you ever heard of them oh, yeah. i remember mother's finest well, well they and i mean they played they were middle of the bill on several of the summer big summer stadium festivals in in atlanta from like 78 to, to 81 and the last time i saw them was headlining at the fox theater which is a 4000 theater in 81 but um, and they got they got rock airplay in Atlanta and I saw them probably I saw them and Aerosmith more times than any other band here. But between the end of high school, I saw at the end of high school and, and the end of college, I saw Mother Science and Aerosmith the most times just because I had opportunities. But they, you know, and they were really good and they were, you know, they were playing to white audiences. I saw them at a club mother's finest and it was mostly in fact it was mostly underage i mean i was 18 by then it was mostly underage audience How much, um, and they were I mean, they got received at the festivals but they didn't break big you know they didn't yeah. break huge yeah i'd have to look into that but at the stone show in atlanta was the audience more black than it was in other cities you think i don't i do not think that i okay. i may be completely wrong um, just so but you know, I, I, I don't think so. Right audience, at least. Maybe um, so. I would right. like to think that. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's I, I would like to think that. But um, but back to Prince, and so so, Latos is talking about the color line in AOR, and, and he says that you know Michael Jackson was the you know, the pebble that started the avalanche, but Prince was the test case for breaking the MTV and album-oriented rock color barriers. And that 
he did it with the 1999 album that even though 1999 got limited um, AOR play, um, Little Red Corvette broke broke straight through and made it to number six. And then and and he's playing arenas by 1999 or 1983 on the 1999 tour, playing 12 to 15,000 seat arenas. So he's he's breaking through right there. And and Mazas also, and I think because he's a dance guy that that he explain this in a way I, I never thought of it this way before it's probably pretty obvious to most people but he views 1999 as a collection of long creatively unfurling dance tracks that play as an homage to the 12 inch dance singles that were dominating pop's creative edge from uk synth pop like new order and depeche mode to new york city post disco labels like west end and prelude and you know this is stuff like um, the peach boys larry levin's uh, group there was a real killer underground dancing going on in New York at that time. And of course, Prince was hip to that stuff. And of course, Prince was hip to, to the synth pop that was coming out of England at that time and combining it all together. And, and that makes perfect sense. Cause that 1999, I, you know, it's got those longer tracks and, but they don't feel like jam tracks, they're dance tracks. And, and aha, of course it's, it's, it's a, he's making a whole album of 12 inches. And then, um, but by 1983, City Pages in, in Minneapolis is already is already wondering, you know, when will Prince make his first movie? And boom, he 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 cuts the deal to make Purple Rain, and he's taking acting and dancing lessons from the Minnesota Dance Theater. I love that, and he paid for it by doing a benefit for him that raised 25 grand. And uh, <laughs> but um, you know, and and the benefits on debut Purple Rain, I Would Die for You, and Baby I'm a Star. This was August of '83, and they're actually cutting album tracks live uh, that night at that benefit. And so then he rented First Avenue, the club, for a hundred thousand dollars for a month. And um, unfortunately for Vanity, his girlfriend and the leader of Vanity Six, she was going to be the big co-star of the movie, but she was fired after Prince and she broke up. Um, he did buy new lighting gear for the First Avenue Club, but um, then Matos talks about the scene during the filming. It was just mayhem, cocaine fuel, twenty four seven, people working around the clock, uh, you know, cutting performance scenes at nine in the morning and stuff like that, and you know, just part of the workload that Prince was on. He also cut six albums in eighty three and eighty four. He's got Purple Rain and Around the World in a Day. I guess he cut 1999 and 82. And then he cuts the Sheila E album. And he talks about how Sheila E and Prince had met way back in the 70s when she was with uh, Santana and had played in Minneapolis. But he also cuts an album on the time. He cuts an album for Apollonia 6, which Apollonia was the replacement for Vanity. She became the co-star of the movie. And then the new band, The Family, which was his replacement for the time, which he had basically gutted by firing Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And he'd also done the Sugar Wall single for Shane Easton, Manic Monday for the Bengals, and then um, played keyboards on Stevie Nicks' Stand Back. So uh, just, you know, busy, busy dude, busy, busy dude. And, um, and then it talks about Erotic City, which was never released as a single, but, but he talks about it got so much radio play that it had it been released as a single, it would have charted at least on the dance charts. And it was so prolific that he gave Albert Magnoli, the director of the movie, a hundred songs to choose from for the soundtrack. I mean, yeah, it's staggers belief. It's hard to believe. Yeah. It's and just, it, it's just incredible. I mean, the guy was so talented and so hardworking and creative. I, I was just reading a biography of Beethoven and it must've been like Beethoven, Beethoven, 
basically didn't have any other ha- hobbies or anything. I mean, Prince did like his sex, but he he wasn't a big drug or anything. But he must have just really been working nonstop. I mean, um, you know, it's just just an I, amazing, I agree. amazing it, amount it, of it is. yeah of of material. And you got to shout out Morris Day, and and you know, Matos gives him his due because he he said he stole every scene he was in in Purple Rain, and he really did. He comes out of that movie a yeah. huge star, and unfortunately. Because Prince had 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 gutted the band by firing Jam and Lewis, you know the time had already basically broken up by the time the movie came out, and and Morris Day's cocaine use and, and bad behavior on the set and his feud with Prince kind of brought it sputtering to a halt. So the time, I think the time is one of the kind of the great lost bands because Prince over dominated their, you know he was using them as a another vehicle for his productivity, and I just. On the one hand, without Prince, there wouldn't be the time. But a band with Morris Day, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis should have been writing their own songs and should have had a good long run. So yeah, I agree. You know, and and then Jesse Johnson was no joke either. He was a guitar player. He co-wrote Jungle Love and the Bird, and you know, and and worked on Janet Jackson's Dream Street album. But, um, you know, by the time I Stream Castles comes out as a huge hit, the band had already broken up and, and moved on. So, you know, um, anyway, but but I guess we need to wrap pretty quick, but we'll talk about the debut of the movie. And it talks about the guest list that Warner Brothers got together to be at, at Man's Chinese Theater. And you've got uh, Morgan Fairchild. You've got Christopher Reeve, Superman, Eddie Murphy. But you've also got John Cougar Mellencamp. And talk, I didn't know this. John Cougar Mellencamp was such a huge Prince fan that when a Little Red Corvette came out, he went on stage at one of his concerts and held up a boombox to the mic and said, y'all need to listen to this. <laughs> Which maybe maybe he thought, and maybe there was uh, the reason I heard it, I've told you this before, is because I, I moved to Columbus, Georgia. It wasn't on rock radio in Birmingham, Birmingham or Atlanta. And because I lived in both places when that song was big. He, he Prince wasn't on those stations at that point, and I did, and not until I moved. So maybe that's why John Cougar thought he needed to do that. <laughs> oh well, you know, got to spread the word, got to spread the word. But you know, you also yeah. have Talking Heads there, and Weird Al Yankovic, and Stevie Nicks, and Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood yeah. Mac. Um, you know, and then and then uh, talks about how Alan Leeds has an anecdote that the one time he saw Prince freak out and, and blink kind of in the face of what was going on was when they were driving to the to the Purple Rain debut and the crowds are so thick that they're blocking traffic and all of a sudden Prince just clutches his hand and holds his hand and I don't know that kind of was a sweet thought I mean that, what a big honor to be the guy that Prince shows his vulnerability to you know Alan Leeds is a, a heavy yeah. dude and uh, did some great work for some great talents and you know it didn't last long, but briefly Prince was scared. But um, and that's why Big Chick, Big Chick Huntsbury was there. That's the famous Prince bodyguard who used to carry him around. And uh, but it's interesting. Like Prince said later in an interview that 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 Purple Rain was so traumatic that the Purple Rain debut or opening night was so traumatic that he realized the whole world was an illusion when he got out of the purple limo at the debut and he sees himself on a giant screen um over the street and and it just totally flipped him out and 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 i think i don't know if he'd already recorded around the world in a day at that point my my guess is he hadn't 
because that album was was like almost a deliberate attack on the Prince persona. It was it was such a break from Purple Rain, um, mm-hmm. you know, that clearly he was he realized you don't want to go full Elvis, you know, <laughs> never go full Elvis. Yeah. And, and yeah. pull back a little bit, you know, which is something Michael Jackson never did, and it might have made a huge difference if if Michael had been able to, you know, kind of pull back from the stardom and the, and the fame. But anyway, it's uh, yeah, just massive success. When Dove's Cry goes to number one, of course, that's the song that Seventeen Days was the was the B side for, you know, and that came out before the movie. Massive number one hit, just a great song. I remember when that came on the radio. That was. That was really when I knew 1984 was a special year. I mean, you know, Little Red Corvette was was great and all, but When Doves Cry just blew everything away. It was such a such a revolutionary song, and and you know, uh, it was you know, the success is history. Purple Rain's number one for six months, and uh, you know, the 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 rest is history, as they say. Any any final thoughts on Prince and Purple Rain? I think this this chapter is so dense, and I actually cheated ahead because that because like you said the the victory tour chapter was so depressing, yeah. and so I started so I just read right after it, and it it was such a just juxtaposition, but what it also really portended was how phenom how it was a phenomenon, you know like and I'm not saying he was doing the same I'm not claiming he was a beetle. But but you know it was bigger than anybody could imagine it was going to be, you know it yeah. was equal to his talent and his talent was equal to it and I think it, I could see getting completely freaked out although what you know the quote he says is reminds me of these recent articles I've read about people who who are taking LSD for the first time I mean that they say stuff like that yeah, you know, the, the, yeah. they realize life's an illusion and you know that just sounds like it. It was just super profound for him because he was that big. Yeah. You know, they knew what they they knew it it had heft. That's the thing. I mean, I yes, I thought Thriller was a great album, but Purple Rain had artistic heft. It just felt like it did. Yeah. To me. Yeah. To me, Thriller felt like a collection of singles. Um, really great singles. Um but Purple Rain to me is more of a cohesive whole. And then it's pretty yeah. stupid, I think, to try to split hairs about what's better, Thriller or Purple Rain. True. You can, you can yes, spend a whole I agree. lifetime on that. They're both just incredible accomplishments. But um, I think I think part of it might be that Purple Rain hit, scratched so many of those rock album itches yes. that Thriller yep. really didn't. The Thriller was an R&B album all the way. I, I mean, it did have rock numbers on it, you know, but it... It wasn't a rock album in that same way that Purple Rain was. And, you know, Purple Rain probably has more filler on it than Thriller does. I mean, it's not much. Sure. One or two songs in both cases, but, and they're not, I mean, that they would be the hit single off a normal album, but, um, you know, Darling Nikki or whatever, uh, Computer Blue is not, is not as great as One Doves Cry, but, you know, what is. But, yeah. yeah, anyway, yeah, great, great fun talking about Prince with you. And next week, we're going to be talking about the indie underground as we continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year. So, yeah, next week we'll be talking about REM and Black Flag and Who's Do and all those bands that uh, I was listening to at the time. So, for Ed Legg and Nate Wilcox, and we'll be back next week. 
follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate kicks off a new series discussing the three kings of emo rap. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.